0: Sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a daily podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history, somewhere in the world, who made a positive, lasting impact. Today, September 30th, we're going to celebrate the birth and life of Dutch feminist Wilhelmina Drucker. So, I wanted to start by addressing uh, some questions that I've been getting about this project. The first question, I love getting questions from you guys, by the way, the first question that I get is how did you come up with this or why did you decide to do a daily podcast and what is wrong with you? Uh, This idea of looking at a forgotten figure in history who was born on this day started a couple of years ago when I was a teacher and I wanted something to have on the board for my students to look at and think about when they walked into class each day. It rapidly became one of their favorite parts of the day, and some kids would even sneak over to my class before school started to try and find out who it was before the other kids did. I loved talking with them about these forgotten icons, and sometimes we would end up getting into these amazing discussions that would last the whole class. When I stepped out of the classroom for two years to be a stay-at-home mom, I found myself feeling like all of this work that I had developed needed to be put to better use, So, I started doing daily Instagram stories on my private Instagram page, and the response I got from friends and family was really, really good. People began to suggest that I make a book out of it or something along those lines. It wasn't until COVID hit that I began to need something to do with all of the free time that I had on my hands. My son was in preschool at the time, and I still wasn't back at work, and I'm not someone that does well with idleness. I get very restless very quickly. I like having creative tasks, and since podcasting is becoming the new I brew beer in my garage, I figured that I would hop on the bandwagon. When I looked at the original list of humans, though, that I had selected, I wasn't happy with the amount of diversity that was there, so I stripped my list down to about a third of the original people, then I went hunting for as many people of color and women and gay icons as I could find, as those usually tend to be the voices that are lost in history. This kind of leads into another question that I get, which is why these people and how do you pick them? It's kind of a vague, or not a vague, more of a hard question, I guess, to answer because even though the criteria is very loose, just making lasting positive impact in some way, it's also very subjective as I have to feel some sort of an interest in the person in order to want to spend hours researching and writing about their lives. Even though the podcast episodes are super short on our show and they rarely go beyond 20 minutes, it's still between six to 10 pages of writing that I'm doing per person, and that's after at least a day of solid researching. And while I currently have 365 humans in history selected for the upcoming year, I am totally open to suggestions if you know someone that you think would be a great candidate. I can't say that I will use them, but I will absolutely take all suggestions into consideration. The actual process of finding these people goes like this. I open up several websites that list historical figures born on specific days in history. Wikipedia and On This Day are my go-to. I put in a date and I just start researching. Some days it takes me a really long time to find someone that is both helpful and interesting. And other days there'd be like five people that were amazing and I had to choose. Sometimes I would think that I had found the perfect person at the end of my research. I would find out that they were like a Nazi sympathizer or something. So I had to check them and start all over again. Avoiding the very well-known was also a challenge at times, but the universe always ended up showing me the right person eventually. On that note, let's jump into the absolutely incredible life of Wilhelmina Drucker. So, Wilhelmina did not have an easy childhood. Her and her elder sister Louise had been born to Constantina Lensig, a often unemployed seamstress who lived in a tiny apartment in one of Amsterdam's poorest neighborhoods. They shared this small space with Constantina's sister and her daughter as well. Wilhelmina and Louise's dad was a jerk. Louis Drucker was a very wealthy German Jewish financer/slash banker. He knew that both of these girls were his, but he never acknowledged them or treated them as his children, even though it was common knowledge about town that he had fathered both of them. Even though he was a millionaire, he barely contributed to their welfare. He never gave the family enough money to rise out of poverty or to secure a better home for the kids. His contributions, what we could technically call child support today, were not a reflection of his income or his net value. He gave an amount that was in direct relation to Constantina's state of poverty. Louise and Wilhelmina were bounced between a number of female relatives depending on their mother's current housing situation. This was often the case back then for children of unwed, destitute mothers. Louis, Also had a son from a previous relationship named Heinrich Ludwig Drucker, and he's going to play kind of a scandalous role in our story in just a bit, so don't forget his name. So Louis, having tired of Constantina, moves on to a woman named Therese Temme. Therese was a single mother of a son named George David Temme. He was also an illegitimate child whose dad had run off. Therese worked as a maid, and it's unclear how her path crossed with this random millionaire's path, but he ends up impregnating Therese five times. Probably due to mounting pressure from everyone around them, Louis finally agrees to marry Therese, thereby legitimizing their five children. This was a godsend for Therese. Overnight, she went from being an unmarried maid with six children to being the wife of a millionaire she no longer had to work. She could surround herself in comfort and luxury. She could provide an amazing quality of life and education for her children. And her family was now in line to inherit a massive fortune once Lewis had passed. Literally like every poor person's dream, right? To marry a millionaire and have everything just magically transformed. It was like a movie. This news was devastating for constantina as she had been in teresa's place before and yet she had not been chosen as a wife leaving her and the two daughters that she shared with lewis borderline homeless this obviously deeply impacted wilhelmina and her sister as well and they saw their father wanting nothing to do with them and he's choosing this other woman to be his wife and providing her And their kids with all of the luxuries that Wilhelmina and Louise had never known. They were now doomed to be known as illegitimate for the rest of their lives. There would be no reprieve. Teresa's son, George, the one that she already had before she met Louis, apparently did not fall under this umbrella of largesse from his new stepfather. So, seeking to distance the family from any scandal, Therese and Louis send 14-year-old George off to go live with some random shoemaker in Amsterdam. I don't even know how they contacted this person. While the rest of the family and the siblings move into a massive estate just outside the Hague. So, George is living in absolute poverty with this random shoemaker until he mysteriously drowns in 1879. There was no inquest or investigation ordered by his mother or stepfather. So Lewis dies in 1884, good riddance, leaving his millions to Therese and their five legitimate children. In his will, he leaves Constantina, Wilhelmina, and Louise a few dollars. Even in death, this guy is a grade A jerk. At this point, Wilhelmina and Louise are beyond livid, and they have worked their fingers to their bones their whole lives, trying to eke out this meager existence as seamstresses like their mother. So they decide to get their revenge the only way that two young girls could at that time. They write. They write a salacious tale the next year in 1885 entitled Romain clef, Georges David under the pseudonym Pretzer. Romana Clef literally means novel with a key. It means a book about real-life events with fake names instead. So tell me if this tale sounds familiar to you. So in the book, we see a young man named George David. He is the illegitimate son of a prostitute named Therese Tame, who is sent to go live with random relatives while his gold-digging prostitute mother tries to seduce the wealthy Ludwig Plucker by having as many of his children as she can. Therese is so eager to get rid of the proof of her previous life that she banishes her teenage son to a life of poverty with a shoemaker. When the boy asks his mom and stepdad for money, the eldest half-brother, Ludwig Plucker, remember the name I told you to remember in the beginning, he decides to protect the reputation of the family and hires someone to drown George David. Sound familiar? Yeah, it did to their half-brother Heinrich Ludwig Drucker, too. He was an up-and-coming radical politician and a college professor. So he's terrified, and he sends the sisters a letter asking them what possible amount of money he could send them that would make them promise to never breathe a word of this again. Their response? They publish a second book that includes a preface about his attempt to bribe them. Yes. They also point out that this guy was living off of an inheritance that they were robbed of by their deadbeat millionaire father. This was poetic justice at its best. But aside from that, it was also a stark chunk of social commentary. Here was the glaring firsthand account of the disparity between men and women, between the wealthy and the destitute. Wilhelmina was also probably fueled to shout it from the mountaintops as she was fresh out of a brief stint at a Catholic school in which she was mocked by her classmates and teachers for being illegitimate. So she left that school, good riddance, and there are not any records around of her being in any other school or having an advanced education, yet she somehow taught herself how to read, speak, and write fluent French. Wilhelmina had a taste for social justice blood and was a very good writer, so she took a position at Groninger Weckblad, a very radical newspaper which focused on universal suffrage. She soon published a scathing op-ed in which she made a public demand for paternity tests and for child support, which was in relation to the father's income, not the mother's monetary state. She follows this up in 1888 with another story, an adaptation of Dickens' A Christmas Carol in which a rich, jerky tightwad is confronted by the sins of his past via visits of ghosts. But in this case, one was the ghost of Wilhelmina and one was the ghost of George David. This seemed to hammer the point home as Wilhelmina met with Hendrick that year and they reached an undisclosed financial settlement. The amount was obviously very sizable because she was able to buy a big house for her sister and her mother in a much better part of town, and she was also able to never return to manual labor, and she ended up devoting the rest of her life to writing and campaigning for gender equality. The fire that she brought to the cause made her at first a controversial figure that many feared, but over time she garnered universal respect among her peers and fellow activists. She held dear to her heart, the women used and thrown away by men who never bore any consequences to the women that bore them children. These poor children were growing up in complete poverty and misery due to their father's negligence and the complete oversight on the part of the law to do anything about this. Wilhelmina publicly demanded that all children born in or out of wedlock receive the same rights and protection. So she founds something called the Women's Mutual Support Society in 1897. She followed the example of the French. They had something called the Mutalité Maternelle, whose prime objective was to protect the rights of unwed mothers and their kids. There is one key part where Wilhelmina's organization differed than the French one. In France, the idea behind public paternity suits was to guilt the father into marrying the mother. Total recipe for happy marriage. Wilhelmina flipped that on its ear, saying that public paternity suits should exist to ensure financial support for the mothers and the kids, not marriage. She believed that the utmost insult a woman could take, aside from having the father of her children abandon her, was to be forced to marry someone who didn't love her. As she said, Prouder and more honorable is the woman who refuses to enter a bond with a man that cannot bear her company and who chooses to brave the world rather than succumb to the constant insult, what would you be if I had not married you? Then the woman who agrees to be chained to a man who deprecates her. Very few indeed would have the courage to answer in such a case. We would have been equals, as we are now. I, an unmarried mother, and you, an unmarried father. Yes, ma'am. So it was this organization that laid the foundation for future women's rights organizations, including a group of women's shelters called Bliff van Mijliff. I probably didn't say that right, which literally translates to stay away from my body, that is the best name for anything I've ever heard in my life, and vrouwentegen vrachting, meaning women against rape. So Wilhelmina was given the nickname Dolmina, or Madmina, which later became the name of a Dutch feminist group founded in 1970. While speaking later that year at the promotion of public decency at the Hague's National Exhibition of Women's Labor, she called out her deadbeat dad when she told the crowd, we should desire that children always be supported according to their father's standard of living, regardless of who the mother is. What she was saying back then was very cutting edge. It was controversial and it pissed off a lot of people, but this was nothing compared to the firestorm that she started when she began talking about women and sex. Women and babies was a shameful enough public topic, especially outside of marriage, but acknowledging that a woman had a sex drive, oh, the horrors. Wilhelmina spoke openly about how a woman's sex drive is just as legitimate as a man's, yet a woman who wanted to be a sexual being had one of two choices, marriage, where she could protect her reputation but lose her freedom, and prostitution, where she could have her freedom but lose her reputation. The solution for this social conundrum was the same as every other social issue that she discussed. Women had to have financial freedom. Financial freedom for women meant freedom in life. They didn't have to get stuck with a guy because he was paying the bills or supporting the kids. They didn't have to work a job that they hated just because they were poor. Then and now, money doesn't bring happiness, but it does provide options. Wilhelmina's critics sneered that she was a person above the sexes, which was a tongue-in-cheek way of saying that she was either asexual or a lesbian, which back then they called a masculine deviant. The insults rolled off of her coat like water off of a confident duck's back, and she powered on immersing herself in the socialist movement. She developed something called the VVV uh, in English, the Free Women's Association, which in 1894 became the Women's Rights Association. The VVV allowed her to intertwine socialism and feminism into one all-inclusive support space, which championed women's causes from economic equality to the fair division of household and child-rearing duties between partners to women's sexual health and freedom. It quickly became the leading feminist organization in the whole Netherlands, and it clashed with other groups which purported to advance women's rights but shied away from controversial issues of the day like suffrage. Wilhelmina, of course, knew that a woman with no voice in politics is a woman who is being oppressed. She also took issue with all the other major women's rights organizations of the day as they were usually helmed by men. But she encouraged all women to work together towards equality, reminding them that waiting for a man or even a political movement such as socialism to grant them basic civil rights was leaving them dead in the water. Wilhelmina continued her life's work until her death on December 5th, 1925 at the age of 78. She never married nor had any children. Today, she is remembered as one of the first major Dutch feminists. I absolutely adore this woman and I'm so glad I got to talk about her with you today. My sources today were the Wilhelmina Drucker webpage, the article, Forgotten Intersections, Wilhelmina Drucker, Early Feminism, and the Dutch-Belgian Connection by Miriam Edvard, and Wikipedia. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Wilhelmina Drucker. Please join me tomorrow, October 1st, when we celebrate the birth and life of the greatest pianist of the 20th century, Vladimir Horowitz. See you then.